Cape Talk. Plan B with Rebecca Davis. Nice to welcome you back, Rebecca Davis. Nice to be back, John. Thank you very much. And uh, we are going to, to talk about gender issues and the EFF and your wonderful open letter to the women in the EFF. But I missed the two reports to which you drew my attention. And they are, in terms of where we're going as a country and where we are as a country, quite worrying. Yeah, there's this thing, John, where we tend to measure how well a country is doing purely in terms of economic growth and in terms of unemployment and employment statistics, which is, you know, that's one measure of where we're at in terms of our financial prosperity. But it's actually only a tiny portion of what constitutes a nation being well in a broader sense. And there's been these two reports brought out in the last week that suggest that we are in a bit of trouble in that regard. So the first was the global, the World Health Organization's assessment of drinking. Now, I'm sure it will not shock you to learn, John, that South Africa is a country of big drinkers. We are sixth in the world when it comes to consumption, but they also look at not just how much you drink, but how you drink. Because, as again, many of us know, it is much more dangerous to drink large amounts over short periods than it is to drink small amounts over long periods. And when it comes to the riskiness with which we drink, number three in the world, only after Russia and Ukraine, two countries which are basically synonymous with risky drinking. Because we have a very high proportion of people in the country who don't drink. Um, we do. M- much higher than most other countries. So the, the, the relatively few of us who do drink. Are really putting it back. Yep. That's right, because the, the survey claimed, the study rather, that only 31% of South African adults who were surveyed had had a drink, an alcoholic drink in the last year, which is very low, I would say. So you're right. Those of you who are drinking, not me, are putting it back. And the point is that this is a case of people drinking themselves to death. It's estimated now as of last year that one in 10 South African deaths are attributable to alcohol, either through you know, disease like cirrhosis of the liver or through accidents and the like, and as many as two in 10 deaths when it's lower income groups. So that's quite serious. Now, that's one thing. I'm not so much looking at the health implications there, but a nation that drinks very heavily is often a nation that is suffering in other ways in terms of depression and, um, you know, a kind of mental health issue. And that is very much what this, one of the first wellness indexes taken on world countries has just shown the indigo wellness index it looked at 151 countries around the world and it looked at stuff like depression happiness life expectancy etc and we came last i mean 151 we are the least well out of 151 well canada was the the most well And this isn't even about, I mean, it's tempting to say that richer countries are happier or at least healthier. That isn't necessarily even the case. The U.S., for instance, is not even in the top 10. And the Philippines is actually very high because it has low levels of obesity and depression. And the report makes the point, I'm going to quote, the very poor scores for countries like South Africa, an economy lauded for its growth rate, in the 2000s shows that simply ranking an economy based on metrics like GDP misses important parts of the story. So obviously if we're sick and we're dying, etc., we don't go to work and that's one thing. But the other element is, of course, are we happy? Are we a happy country? It suggests that we, we aren't because we're drinking so much for a start, that there are high levels of depression as well, largely undiagnosed. And I don't know about you, John, but that kind of tallies with what I see and certainly what I sense, that maybe we're not a country that's doing very well in terms of 
optimism and keeping it together necessarily all the time. Yes, my three hours a day on the radio <laughs> make that abundantly clear to me. And also, our let's keep going, being depressing, a depressing week for South African gender issues. I thought so, John. I feel quite exhausted. I mean, we had obviously the Babes Wadumo issue, where her music producer, musician, boyfriend, Mampincha, allegedly captured live on Instagram, beating her. I mean, that alone is quite astonishing, John, because I'd like to know how many presidents there are for crimes committed live. I was thinking about this in South Africa. The only uh, example I can think of, was it during the World Cup when, where an SABC reporter was robbed live mm. on air while reporting? But it doesn't happen that often. And then, of course, we've had this issue with Julius Malema releasing um, the details of journalist Karima Brown, who's been subjected to this kind of shocking wave of abuse online. And, of course, not the first time. Malema and Shivambu have also effectively suggested to their millions of followers that a number of female journalists should be targeted in the past. We've seen the likes of Feriel Hafiji, Ranjani Munasami, Poli van Veik. So there definitely has been a preponderance of female journalists. Um, most of them have been journalists of color as well, which makes the EFF's stance on it, you know, doubly, doubly strange and hypocritical, I think, in a lot of ways. And what I said in an article I published on Daily Maverick today is that, you know, we all know political parties are not exactly leading society when it comes to to, to not being sexist, not harboring abusers, etc. But the EFF's unique selling point from the beginning was going to be their difference in this regards, that they weren't just going to focus on, you know, nationalization and economic transformation, that they really spoke the talk about gender. They actually used the language of gender activists. They really did talk about things like taking on patriarchy in a way that South African political parties just don't. And there was something, even to, you know, white people like me, and I know the EFF is not remotely interested in my vote, but there was something very appealing about that. And to find now that, you know, I think the slip is showing in terms of the male leaders like Julius Malema and Floyd Shivambu. At the end of the day, we've actually seen very little evidence that the EFF is as committed to progressive gender politics as they claim. And in fact, quite a lot of evidence that the opposite is true, that they are investing in a kind of toxic discourse around gender and perhaps inciting bullying. It makes me very sad. And the story of the Belgian female cyclist, it makes there's a sort of rueful smile it's a, it's a smile of anguish rather than the smile of great elation but it's a metaphor for women in the world there was a belgian cycle race last week and i'll just read you the cnn headline that basically sums up what happened woman cyclist forced to stop race after catching up with men so it was in belgium it was a race called the Om omloopet nieuwvalsblad i don't know race there was Swiss cyclist Nicole Hanselman who was leading the women's pack by 2 minutes and 30 seconds. So she had a good old gap. And she was then asked by race organizers to stop at a level crossing because she was catching up with the men's race. And they needed the men to get further away. So they needed to give the men time to, to cycle a bit. So she just had to wait until the men had got far enough away. And she ended up finishing 75th, by the way, because she claimed it um, disturbed her momentum a little bit. But, I mean... That's just that's how it feels. It is a metaphor. It feels like a metaphor. Yeah. Um, after receiving your email this morning of the things you wanted to talk about, I, I applied for a job in the media department at Nottingham Trent University. Yes, I I also want to go there. I think as a student, Nottingham Trent University is in the UK and it is noteworthy today and every day. I feel because they have 
an in-house therapy dog. He is a sausage dog and his name is Jimmy Chipolata and he wears a small tie and a mortarboard and he walks around the university. <laughs> I actually feel tears springing to my eyes. <laughs> tears of elation and exhaustion. He walks around the university and students can pet him and tell him their problems and he receives his salary in cheese. They claim he has had wondrous effects on students opening up just, you know, who wouldn't want to have a little squeeze of a, a sausage dog in times of trouble? George, your producer, is literally holding his head in his hands in agony at all this. And my suggestion, John, is that all of us, all workplaces in the country, should invest in in-house therapy dogs to be remunerated in cheese. I think that that... Well, I, I thought cheese was bad for dogs. Well, I know there is that. But, I mean, we can't be killjoys about everything, John. Just give them <laughs> a baby bell now and then and see how morale will raise. This could be, in fact, all we need to get our rankings up on that wellness in- index. I've already had somebody excusing the, um, the female cyclist, saying it's perfectly reasonable. It's a group thing. Yes, all right. Thank you, sir. Sorry, we were on a high with the dog and then I brought... Back to Johnny Chipolata. Please (laughs) Google him. He's adorable in his mortarboard and small tie. Thank you, Rebecca.